Blog Talk Radio. Well, you must hit the one where it doesn't do anything and then it cycles back to uh, start again, which usually takes about 20 seconds. It went to the the pause thing and then... There. Welcome to Peach State Pandemonium, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network, where we take you down memory lane for a look at professional wrestling the way it used to be, with conversations from those who paved the way. And now, the GWH Radio Network presents Peach State Pandemonium. Good evening, and welcome to Peach State Pandemonium for Thursday, May 18, 2017. This is Michael Norris, along with Bobby Simmons and Jay West. Uh, Jerry Oates uh, is not going to be with us this evening. He had a prior engagement, so uh, but we will carry on as if, uh, if as if he were here. And uh, I got the Braves in the background. I'm waiting. I'm hoping to see another battle royal like we had last night. Oh man, Freddie Freeman is out for clear last night. Yeah, Freddie Freeman is out for at least two months with a broken wrist. Uh, this whole series with Toronto, both the two games up there and last night's game, they hit seven of our players. I, don't, I know none of them were intentional, but still, that's some sloppy pitching. Yeah, did, did but, the benches uh, finally clear late in the game? I watched part of it. Didn't? And didn't no, see. they never did. They they all yeah they cleared and came out to home plate and stood and, and bumped noses and that was about it. No no oh, no yeah. fists were thrown, but. The guy who did the uh, started the first uh, confrontation, he was suspended for two games because evidently he uh, called the Braves pitcher. They said a slur. I don't know what kind of slur it could have been since the it guy was a white yeah. guy. So. Unless they called him a, a, a fat ass because the guy is kind of big. But um, it's it but, started with F. It's uh, he, yeah, it and then uh, Batista, you know, showed his butt. But Teron hit him intentionally uh, with his second pitch, and then all that did was give them three runs. <laughs> so we're behind. <laughs> so that was kind of that kind of backfired on us. But yeah, we'll see. It's just huh. it's going to hurt because I mean Freeman. Had he stayed on the tear he was on, he he, you know, of course it's early in the season, but he was well on his way to an MVP series. I mean yeah. season, so. We'll see, you know, because he's a notorious slow starter, and him taking losing two months, and it may take him another two months to get going. And he won't. It'll be September before he gets hot again. But we'll see. We'll see. We're actually in second place in the National League East, which doesn't say much about us. It just says how bad the rest of the National League East. Well, we'll see how good we are tomorrow night when the Nationals get here. So. Yeah, that's true. That is true. So what's been going on with you guys? Um, Have you recovered, from your, you recovered from your trip uh, with your comrades, Bobby? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was. I just it took a few days to get used to the time back being back on Georgia time. I would sleep during the day and want to be up at night. But uh, uh, yeah, things are back to normal and uh, uh, life moves on. So. Uh, 
you really didn't get a chance to talk much about the convention out there. I'd really be interested in knowing if you there anybody there that you hadn't seen before or hadn't seen in a while or uh, things along that nature. Of course, we know that Bobby Simmons won the Charlie Smith Award this past year. And yeah, I was very, to very proud, that. very proud to uh, to get that. Uh, the uh, uh, I saw uh, uh, Ed Wiskowski was there this year. First time I had seen Ed in a lot of years. I was glad to, glad to see him. Uh, Greg Oliver and. Uh, uh, I forget who was with him, but anyway, they flew into Phoenix and uh, and rented a car and picked up Ed, and they drove from Phoenix to Vegas. Uh, Kurt Nielsen was with him, the guy that was on Kurt our Nielsen, show. That's week. exactly who it was, and uh, yeah, they <clears throat> it was a good trip. Good to see him. Um, uh, Terry Funk wasn't there this year. It was good to see Tully Blanchard. That's the first time I had actually seen Tully since 1974. Uh, when Tully finally got out of college and got his break, he went. Uh, I guess his big break came in the Carolinas, but he, he, uh, I never saw him in Georgia. He was always up there. We just never crossed paths again. But uh, I worked with Tully the first when he first. He was still in college. He came here and worked with Ann Gunkel, and uh, for for a couple of months, and uh, that was when the NCAA passed the rule where you could be paid in another sport as long as it didn't pertain to what your eligibility was in. So he was he was a starting quarterback at West Texas State, but he was able to come here and wrestle a little bit. So it was good to talk to him. Uh uh good to uh uh it was it was an absolute joy to hear him tell his his uh his story about his fall from grace in the wrestling business and how that the good Lord had uh, opened other doors for him. And uh, uh, so it was good to see him. Of course, always good to see Jim Dillon and uh, 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 the normal crews out there. Even <clears throat> I've even been going so long now that some of the fans I've come to know and look forward to seeing. So uh, it just uh, had, a, had a wonderful time. I look forward to going every year. It's a good trip. And uh, for anybody that's never been, uh, I, I just – it may not be your thing to go every year, but it is uh uh it's well worth going one time just to just to see the spectacle that it is. Was the awards dinner sold out this year? Well, they were down this year. I think there was around four fifty, five hundred people there. Last oh, year we good. had we had about seven hundred last year, so it was down a little bit from the year before, but, but that it goes up and down. But yeah, there was a room full of people there. We we had a lot of deaths, you know, in the last in the last year or so. Uh, do you think that has uh, well, what, what would I say, uh, taken away from some people's interest in uh, attending that sort of attending the dinner? You know, I'm sure I'm sure as some as some pass away that uh, you know, probably some people say they don't want to go back or whatever, but. I think it depends. I think it depends on who's getting the awards. Uh, I'm speaking from guys from the business. Uh, as, as when certain guys get awards, people come that uh, uh, that don't normally come. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year when Patera got his award, there was a lot of people came from the AWA that, that had not been there in a number of years. 
Um, this year, the awards was uh, <laughs> doesn't say much. I was on the awards program, but they recognized the girls from Glow. A lot of guys didn't like that, but you know it was what it was. And I mean, you know, the dang thing was in seventy-five countries and and had a seven and a half million people watching it every week. So it was what it was. But uh, all thirty of those girls were there this year. Uh, so that was uh, that was Friday night, and uh, there weren't as many awards handed out this year. Uh, one thing I am happy about is is uh, it was supposed to be hosted by Gene Okerlund and Jim Ross. Well, Gene got sick on Friday on Saturday and was on or a Wednesday. I'm sorry, was unable to be there, and uh, I think I said Friday night for Glows. I meant Tuesday, but uh, the Wednesday night banquet Jim Ross hosted it by himself. And buddy, he 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 did it well. We were in and out of there by 9:30, which we're normally not out of there till midnight. And uh, mm-hmm. so it was. Yep, uh, things moving. It moved along, and it was uh, it was very good. Uh, it was real good this year. I enjoyed it. But yeah, it's up and down. Just it's just year to year. Next year it's going to be the last day of April and the first two days of May. So the 30th, the first, and the second next year in 2018. And uh, it will again be at the Gold Coast Hotel and Casino, and uh, uh, like I say, if, if anybody that's never been, I would thoroughly recommend making the trip one time if you possibly can. Uh, and another well, thing, let me let me throw this in too: the Cauliflower Alley Club is the only wrestling organization or boxing organization that I know of that is a legitimate five hundred one c nonprofit organization, Great. and. It's $25 a year to, to be a member. That gets you four or five newsletters a year. The newsletter, which has been taken over by by uh, Royal Duncan, who owns his own printing company on the board of directors, it's it's a it's a it's a slick magazine. It's not a it's not a, a newspaper or a stapled together uh, thing. It is an actually a, a magazine, and it's eight, mm-hmm. ten, twelve pages, and it comes out three or four times a year. Uh, you get a certificate that's frameable that says you're a member. And uh, even better than that, if you really want to be a contributor to this club and, and to the things that it does, for $300 you become a lifetime member. And I know that sounds like a lot of money, but I had paid more than 300 and paid 25 a year sure. before I finally bit the bullet and just gave them 300 bucks. And of that 300 so 275 is tax deductible. Uh, the, so it's 25 a year? Twenty-five a year, or three hundred for a lifetime membership, and uh, it's it's you know all the money. This 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 is a legitimate organization that helps guys that are down and out on their luck, uh, medical reasons, whatever the case. Um, I mean, they're gone now, so I don't mind saying this. They they reached out. They helped Bill Bowman a little bit. Um, I know they've helped other people, and. Uh, uh, they offer scholarships uh, that, that members can recommend people to get. So it's a uh, it, it's a legitimate club. And, and it, you know, anybody that's not a member, if you're a wrestling fan or, or part of the wrestling business, uh, uh, I suggest you you do this. It's it's not it's not a waste of time or a waste of money. It's not like the old retired wrestlers' home that they used to do, but uh, it is legitimate. So. And it's early enough in the year, so it's not uh, blazing hot when you're out there either. 
Oh yeah, it, it was it was uh, it never got above above eighty five, eighty six when we were there. Um, uh, matter of fact, the Monday the after we left, storm, it was supposed to be back uh, down in the seventies. So they wound up in a blizzard. Yeah, we went through a blizzard. We uh, on the way out there, we were. It's this is the gospel truth. It sounds like I'm making this up, but it's the truth. We stopped. We had just crossed the New Mexico border, and we started seeing signs for a Dairy Queen. It said such and such, 85 miles. And Randy made the remarks, and we'll be there in no time. So we pull into this Dairy Queen in the middle of nowhere. And uh, when we stopped the car, we looked at the, the, the van we rented. had a thermometer in it, like most new cars do now, and it said 79 degrees. No, I'm sorry, 59. It said 59 degrees. And we got out and we went in, and we were in this place, and it was a, a um, it was a tourist trap from the get go. It was a souvenir shop. They had buffalo heads hanging on the wall, and just all sorts of stuff. We went back and got an ice cream, and we sat in the Dairy Queen, ate the ice cream. Then we went to the restroom, which is all the way on the other end of the building. We looked around a little bit, did a, you know, we're just just killing time. We were probably there thirty thirty five minutes. We came back outside. Now I'm wearing shorts and my Crocs and a T-shirt. And I came back outside, and I thought I had walked into the twilight zone. And I said, what in the world is this? We got in the van and started the engine, and the temperature said 39. It dropped 20 degrees in like 30 minutes. And we had already been warned about a snowstorm coming out of Colorado, coming south. So we hit the interstate, and we started, and the closer to Albuquerque we got, the darker it got. And when we hit Albuquerque, or just the other side of it, we were in a full-blown snowstorm. And its I told Randy, I made the remark, I said, if we stop, we're stuck. I said, we've got to keep moving. And when we got almost to the Arizona border, it stopped. And we were under a huge dark cloud. I, it, it was very strange. The weather out there is so different. But we were under this huge dark cloud. And the further west we went, the closer to the light we got. And finally, somewhere in Arizona, we run out from under it. The temperature shot back up to about 78, 79 degrees and stayed wow. that way till 10 o'clock that night. So, uh, Wow. Very interesting. But, yeah, it's kind of odd when you're, when you're in the middle of Texas and it's 80 degrees and you cross the state line and it's snowing. Uh, yeah, when we had a uh, one of our uh, bivouacs uh, drill overnight up in Catoosa, up there at the uh, Georgia-Tennessee uh, line, uh, on a Friday night there, it was, and, you know, just uh, it was uh, very, very pleasant, uh, 79, 80 degrees, and within 12 hours it had dropped to 35 degrees. Mm-hmm. These guys didn't bring their, uh, you know, heavy field jackets and things like that because they thought they weren't going to need it. Uh, you know, they were begging for somebody to uh, loan them one. But, uh, yeah, that's uh, those things happened. Uh, uh, it sounds like you guys had a good trip. We did. We had a good time. We had a wonderful time. And uh, uh, we, uh, you know, the, the tireder we got, the sillier we got, and just uh, it was a uh, we had a great time. I, I, I said I would do it one time. I'd do it again in a heartbeat. It was just, we just had that good a time. Well, guys, before I get uh, Alfred on the line with us, I just want to acknowledge one more thing. We lost another of our fraternity uh, just within the last couple of days. Uh, pretty boy Doug Summers. Um, 
most people remember Doug from his uh, run in the AWA at the end of the 80s. He and he and Buddy Rose were one of the few bright spots in a in a dying promotion um, up there. But uh, a lot of people don't realize how long Doug Summers had been around. Uh, he was originally from Minnesota, uh, Minneapolis. Um, he was trained by Harley Race. Uh, broke in uh, in the AWA in the early to mid '70s. Spent a lot of time there, as most people do when they when they start in the business. He refereed up there. Uh, worked all over the place. Worked in Florida. Worked in the Carolinas. Um, came through Georgia, I'm sure, and uh, ended up back here. He, in fact, I guess his last. Semi full time run was was with uh, you guys uh, when Gunkel tried to restart in the uh, late eighties, Bobby. He was with you. Yeah, guys. he ran eighty eighty five. He was there. Uh, I met Doug Summers in nineteen seventy four. He was here when I when I came over to work for Ann or from Ann over to the Georgia office. He was here. Um, uh, here he was here shortly thereafter. He came in, but I met him in seventy four, and uh, yeah, it's. Uh, uh, we had become pretty good friends. Uh, just, uh, I mean, not to, we didn't go out to eat together, but we had become uh, we had become very very cordial with one another, and we talked periodically. And uh, uh, sometimes he'd call out of the blue and just want to talk. He, uh, Doug had uh, Doug had got a little dementia, a little had some little maybe early onset Alzheimer's here in recent years, and he was just uh, his health had been really declining. Uh, Anybody that might be in the area or might want to know, his uh, viewing is uh, this Friday night or tomorrow night at the Hutchison Funeral Home in Buchanan, Georgia, which is over in uh, western central Georgia, a little bit north of I-20, and uh, out near Tallapoosa. Somebody might be more familiar with that. And uh, the funeral service is Saturday morning at 11 o'clock in the chapel of the funeral home. So... I didn't know him personally, but I introduced him several times on TV and at the various uh, arenas uh, in the metro Atlanta area. Uh, Last time I saw him was at the uh, Nightmare to Remember uh, down there in Douglasville, and uh, he appeared then to be a little shaky. Yeah, he was Uh, was starting to go then, yeah. What what I remember about him uh, from his ring persona and just, you know, seeing him hang, he was one of those guys that didn't didn't appear to have any ego at all. You know, he was there to do his job and uh, put over who we need to. And if they wanted him to, uh, you know, Broadway or win, then he was certainly willing to do it. But at the same time, uh, he was certainly, uh, you know, uh, willing to put over who he needed to. And uh, he just enjoyed to be in the business. I've made the comparison before, but when he, especially when he became a blonde heel, um, he started out he was a dark-haired, curly-haired baby face. But then when when he became a blonde heel towards the, the tail end of his career, he reminded me so much of Don Carson. Talked like Don Carson, was shaped like Don Carson, was you know tall, rangy guy, and uh, just he just reminded me a lot of Don Carson for some reason. But uh, Doug was Doug was a great guy. Very good worker, very underrated as far as his talent in the ring. Mm-hmm. Could, could work with anybody, and uh, just just I guess the first time I met him, um, I never knew him in the business. 
course, we were never, you know, I was in the business for such a short time, but we were certainly never anywhere at the same time uh, or any territory at the same time. But I met him at um, the memorial we had at uh, Bobby's Church for Ken Thames. Um, Doug Doug came to that, and uh, again, you know, I saw him at the Nightmare to Remember thing. But but just just what a nice guy. Uh, and like to your point, uh, um, Jay, he's just just very unassuming, down to earth, you know, quiet. But uh, I tell you, man, it's just uh, we're losing too many of them too quick. Yeah, the. Uh... The day you're talking about Michael at that church, that was the day he walked up to me and said, if anything ever happens to me, will you promise me you will speak over me? So, so you know, I never know how to answer that question. I'm very I'm very uh, uh, uncomfortable when that is posed at me uh, because all I can say is, you know, I'll do what I can, but uh, I, have, uh, I have that obligation Saturday morning, so I'd appreciate some good thoughts my way. Uh, you got I have it. a little something to say to Absolutely. help the family. Unfortunately, you've done more more of these here in the last few years than, than I, you know. It'll, I can imagine what you have to go through because so many of them, you know, and Doug you knew, but not personal, but people like Bowman and Lester yep. Welch and Ronnie West and people like that that have called on you to yeah. make that promise. But uh, it's... Uh, uh, I don't know how you do it sometimes, my brother. Well, me neither. Me neither. But anyway, neither. to to uh, to get off of that note, let me uh, bring on Mr. Alfred Tissonetto. And if I'm pronouncing your name wrong, Alfred, uh, be sure and let me know. But Alfred is the foremost expert, in my humble opinion, on the late, great Bobby Shane. And the odd thing was that... Uh, uh, you grew up in New York, so how in the world did you even get in, get get involved in even knowing about Bobby Shane? I guess, I guess the, the the Tampa program ran right up there on one of the stations, didn't it? Well, uh, actually, um, I became a fan in '76, so that was the year after Bobby had died. And what happened? A friend of mine had given me some old magazines that he had. And they had a couple of articles about Bobby and the plane crash and Bobby dying in that crash. And uh, it just moved me. And it was something that gripped me even at 12 years old. And it was something that stayed with me really throughout the years. I mean, I was always very sensitive uh, to things like that. And it was something I never forgot. And, um, you know, even as my wrestling interest uh, went up and down in the 80s and 90s, you know, I would always look for his name in, like, nostalgia magazines or you know, when Scott Teal started coming out with his whatever happened to, which I subscribed to, um, you know, I always, like, was interested when wrestlers would talk about Bobby. You know, and I started writing about him, and I contacted so many people who knew him, um, you know, Dean Silverstone and Bob Kelly and, you know, Nick Bockwinkle and people like that. Um, that was really how I became uh, interested in him. But, yeah, no, I never saw him wrestle. And he died a year before I actually became a fan. But it was something that really, you know, just grabbed my interest and had the effect on me, you know, at a young age. 
Now, in, in researching him, and I was talking to Jerry Ose last night, and neither one of us knew the answer to this question. Is uh, We knew he he grew up in St. Louis, obviously, um, mm-hmm. was involved as a young man before he got in the business, you know, doing errands around the office, kind of like how yep. Bobby Simmons got, got started in the business, and he... Uh, you know, would work at the Keel Auditorium carrying the, the the boys' jackets back and everything. But who actually trained Bobby? Do you know? Um, going from what I read, uh, Wild Bill Longston uh, was one of the trainers. At you know, Bobby started going when he was a teenager to a gym in St. Louis called Harry Cook's Gym in downtown St. Louis on a street called Broadway. And uh, you know, Bobby's mom told me the story. Actually, it was kind of funny. And he would go down there and, uh, you know, and he would work out. And he would actually pester the wrestlers to start working out with them. And I think I think Rip Hawk at the time also was there. And I think Dick the Bruiser, but not 100% sure about that. And anyway, so Bill Longson and Bobby Bruin, who was a promoter and also a former wrestler, you know, they would take Bobby into, Bobby would call it the torture room. And it would be like just no windows, just like a mat on the floor. And uh, they would call in like these old-time wrestlers to work with Bobby. And, you know, back in those days, you know, the, you know, they didn't train just anybody. They would really beat the hell out of people who wanted to be a wrestler to see if they could take it. And Bobby kept coming back for more. And uh, they thought he was um, serious and they trained him. But I think Rip Hawk. And Dick the Bruiser, from what I've read, I don't know. It was hard to tell the accuracy of stuff like that. It was one. For, it was more for the magazines that printed actual facts, not kayfabe stuff. So I think it was probably right. Rip Hawk and Dick the Bruiser. I can see that, especially the Rip Hawk, because his later ones, when he became a heel, he, a lot of his persona was very similar to to Rip Hawk. In fact, the uh, he even I don't know if he did it. Any other place, but when he came to Mobile in 1971, he first made made his first appearance in, in Mobile in uh, February of 1971. And Mobile was the first territory he actually worked heel in. Prior to that, going all mm-hmm. the way back to the mid 60s, you know, he was the boy wonder. Um, you know, he was a, a clean cut baby face, and you know, they built him probably two or three years younger than he actually was, but. Uh, you know, they took advantage of, of his youthful appearance and everything. And, and people yeah. don't realize that, that, you know, only know Bobby from the heel persona in the 70s is where all he worked. Besides St. Louis, he was he was in uh, the Pacific Northwest, and this is even prior to uh, um, Dean Silverstone's promotion. He and Dean knew each other when Dean uh, was working with Don Owen. Uh, yeah. Bobby was big in Hawaii. Um, uh-huh. He worked Omaha. For uh, Joe Dusick, he uh, of course was was a major baby face here in here in Georgia. Um, mm-hmm. He and Doug Gilbert, uh, the pro, were were you know big tag team partners. And uh, yeah. but when he uh, when he left Atlanta and and gave uh, Garibaldi the his notice here, and uh, Garibaldi helped him get booked into Mobile. He called Bob Kelly and told Bob Kelly, he said, I'm, I want to come in as a, as a heel. He yeah. said, I've never worked heel before, and that's the whole king of, of 
wrestling, that whole gimmick started down there. But they, getting back to what I was saying about Rip Hawk, Rip Hawk's nickname back through most of his career was the profile. He used to talk about what a wonderful chiseled profile he had. Shane did the same <laughs> thing. He would see, he would talk on on TV, and he'd come out and say, you know, you you peasants don't deserve to see the king of wrestling on television. If you want to see me, you you're gonna have to pay and come to the arena. And he would turn his nose up at the end and say, look at this profile. And, <laughs> but the thing is about you know people that that grew up in that territory, the Mobile territories, that like I did, their memories of Bobby Shane are so ingrained and and it. If you think about Bobby Shane, it, it appeared like he was there more than he was. He was right. never there for more than three weeks at a time. Mm. He came in, and basically when he came in, uh, he spent about three weeks there. He formed a, formed an alliance with uh, Terry and Jimmy Garvin. Then he scooted to Florida, and he would come back once a month or so. What made him such a big name in in the Mobile Territory, and everybody still talks about it, he did a thing uh, on television where he slapped Lee Fields, who was the promoter there. Lee came out of retirement, and Lee Lee Fields, besides literally owning that territory, he was probably the the most popular babyface there for 25 years, even when he was no longer wrestling. You know, everybody just, just loved Lee Fields. And when Shane slapped him and he came out of retirement and everything, Funny story on it. I don't know if Kelly told you this story or not, but when that when that took place in the uh, the TV studio in Pensacola, they they, they taped on uh, Saturday mornings. When they did that deal, where Bobby slapped Lee, and Lee you know fell to the floor and then got up and they started fighting. Uh, Lee's son. Ricky Fields, who later got in the business, became was a referee for for a couple of years, and then was was a very good wrestler for a few years. But Ricky, at that time, was twelve, thirteen years old. He happened to be at the the studio, and if you could ever find videotape of that, which is the holy grail of Gulf Coast wrestling, because I don't think it exists, but if anybody ever found it during that brawl, if you look towards the floor, you'll see. See a young Ricky Fields biting Bobby Shane on his ankle, <laughs> but yeah, um, but that that, that, that yeah. little simple thing, mm. just and they they milk that for five or six months. Shane would leave and he'd come back and he and he and Lee would have another match and then finally the blow off was like, like I said. Their first match against each other was in May. Their their final blow off was like in October. Um, but Lee never Lee lost the first match against him. Uh, but finally, you know, after the, the the fourth or fifth match that they had, he finally beat Shane. But another thing that um, that Shane did, um, and I don't remember the circumstances behind this. Um, but they had uh, they had booked a big festival, and Shane was supposed to headline. And I think it was he was going against either Lee or Bob Kelly or somebody. But anyway, at the last minute, Shane called from Tampa and told Lee Fields. He said, "I'm not coming." He said, "Why? I've already got you booked. We've got you know we're expecting a, a sellout and all that." He said, "Well, I'll come if you give me ten percent of the gate." Mm-hmm. 
And Lee thought about it for a minute and said, okay. Then he turned around and made every ticket in the building a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> so Shane kind of screwed himself out of a little bit more money than he would have probably made to begin with. But uh, his right. last appearance in Mobile was uh, two months, two or three months before he was killed in the plane crash. But uh, uh, he just uh, made that big of an impression just coming those few times into into Mobile. You thought he was a full timer there for you know three years, but he wasn't. Right. Uh, Alfred, this is Jay West. When you know, being from where you were from, and all of the uh, wrestlers uh, who, who who basically had a, a, a south a southern reputation. Uh, how did you decide that? Bobby Shane was the guy you wanted to become uh, uh, so familiar with and to be the expert on. Well, you know, like I said, you know, it, it's just funny the way it developed. I mean, you know, just the, the way he died in the plane crash and just reading about him, it was just something that stuck with me. But, you know, in like uh, 1996, the, the catalyst for the work I did for Bobby, and I even emailed Austin Idol and told him about this. You know, after the plane crash, you know, Austin Idol had that with Mike McCord at that point. And um, Mike McCord, you know, he made a couple of comebacks, and then he disappeared mm-hmm. on the face of the earth. And in 1980, we started getting Georgia Wrestling on the cable. And, you know, Austin Idol, of course, was one of the top fields in Georgia Wrestling at that point. And, you know, I like Austin Idol. I mean, he was one of the people I liked at that point, but, you know, Austin Idol and Go Wrestling too, and of course, at that point, Tommy Rich, Van Hansen. But anyway, um, now, years later, in the 90s, you know, some of the magazines did like, you know, a then and now feature on the wrestlers, and one of them was Austin Idol, and the uh, old picture of Idol was Mike McCord. And I'm looking at this like, I'm confused at that point. It's like, you know, it's like, you know, I don't think have been Mike McCord, you know. And I, now, I, I can't recognize faces and stuff because I have a visual impairment. And so I looked at the magazine, finally, this was around 96. And I said, you know, I go, are they one and the same? Or it's Idol and Mike McCord. And they confirmed and said, yes, they are one and the same, the same person. And, you know, in researching Austin Idol and then the plane crash, it just rekindled everything about Bobby Shane. It started back in 1976 when I first read about him. And I started writing about him. I wrote a couple of articles for him for some wrestling thousand newsletters. And a friend of mine at work had said, well, you know, you know your articles, good. they like it at least. They want you to send to Bobby's family. And that started me getting in touch with Bobby's family and I sent it to his mom and she sent me some old pictures of his. She was very close to to me and you know, Bobby's uncle became the best friend I ever had, you know. And uh and through that seven that Dean Silverstone rather and Bob Kelly both encouraged me to join the Cauliflower Alley Club, which I did and and then, you know, the biggest role for me was 2006 when Bobby was on his boat in Mobile at the Gold Coast Reunion and the CAC Reunion. And on behalf of Bobby's family, I accepted the posthumous uh, award for him on their behalf, you know. But, yeah, yeah just, you know, just the story about Bobby and his death, it just, 
something that just moved me and touched me, even though I, you know, I can't even know if he's Bruno was my favorite in that respect, that we wanted to see him wrestle up the garden of the Coliseum. You know, but overall, Bobby was the one who really inspired me to get more involved in writing and stuff like that, actually. You know, I went to St. Louis and just thought of Bobby's memory. That's why I met his family, you know. So. I was uh, working at a radio station, uh, uh, and uh, when when the plane crash occurred, and I was uh, there by myself, and anyway, uh, I would tear material off to read the news, small station, and uh, I tore off, uh, the news and I, I, you know, what I was going to use with the Georgia and the regional and, uh, the story on the plane crash was in the regional news that I pulled off. And mm-hmm. I, I've been a wrestling fan for a long time. And then I had started this ring announcer in Atlanta and it just gave me cold chills when I just, uh, saw the, uh, the story and, uh, that Shane had not survived and who always, uh, mm-hmm. plane with him, and uh, actually, I had written a couple of uh, stories for Norm Kaiser's uh, magazine, and I talked to Jim Melby, who was the editor. And uh, when Bill Watson came to Georgia, he uh, he brought the North American title with him, and uh, it became fractured because uh, he wasn't there in Oklahoma to defend it. And uh, so I, I I did a story called the North American uh, title part two and I did it like a uh, like it was a, a script for a movie and uh, one of the big tie-ins was uh, relating to Bobby Shane's change in persona after he left Georgia and went to uh, Alabama and uh, so at any rate uh, uh, that there's just so many things that tie into that plane crash and right. uh, you know it's, it's just a part of wrestling history and uh, it's, it's you know, something that if you weren't there and you become interested in somebody like Bobby Shane, uh, it, it's just something that you almost can't get enough on. You want you want to find out more information on it. Right. And I remember that article that you, you, you just talked about uh, that you wrote that. I remember I had the magazine with the article. And that, that was a very interesting article. And uh, it really, that was one of the articles that, when I started researching him again in the 90s, I got a copy of that magazine with that article. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it was a very, very good article. And uh, yeah, there's stuff like that that really, it does it. It brings it home, like how, you know, when so many people have told me, like, you know, Bobby would have gone so far into business, he would have been, you know, he was like Rick Flair before Rick Flair was even here, you know, that. He was just right. like a consummate heel, and he would have been like an, a great booker. He had a great mind for the business, and you know, even like by the time the first WrestleMania came in 1985, right, he would have been 50 at that point, maybe no longer wrestling. But he mm-hmm. would have been, he could have been a big part of wrestling as it went to when he evolved to where it is now, because you know, Bobby, you know, Bobby was very enterprising, and he probably. He'd probably be involved in this still the way Cass has and was just a fan, you know, right hand man. You know, Bobby probably would have been involved in that sense too with either Crockett or McMahon or or someone else, you know. Sure. Yeah, Bobby, I were found you him. 
Did you ever spend any time around him, Bobby? I know he was in and out of Georgia after you went back to work for, for Barn. Well, actually, he died about three months after you went back to work for Barnett. Were you, did you ever get to be around him? Never, never met him. Never met him. We, uh, he was, uh, we, we, we spoke, I mean, we'd pass each other in the TV station or, or we would, uh, uh, you know, see each other, uh, you know, out on the highway or something, but, uh, never, never worked together, never were friends. And, uh, uh, yeah, he went to Florida, you know, sure. He left for Florida, just before I went to to Barnett in November '74, and uh, uh, just never did. Uh, Gary, after Gary recovered, Gary came, Gary Hart came here as the assistant booker, and uh, uh, of course felt felt like after listening to Gary tell the stories and the things that happened, it was uh, uh, you know felt like felt like we were closer than what we were. But no, I never never had the privilege. Yeah, he had. Um, I want to say he came back from Australia around October, November of '74. He hadn't been back in the states for very long. Um, he was over there with Barnett, um, and he was actually that was the first territory he ever had a hand in booking in. And I think the the idea was for him to, when he came back to the states, to um, you know start booking in Florida. Uh, Freddie Graham, right, and that's what was what happened. Uh, you know, Jerry Jarrett. Uh, I guess there was a booking for the Booker in uh, Georgia. There was an opening, and Jerry Jarrett became Booker in Georgia. And Bobby Shane was his assistant for a while. Then, when the booking position in Australia became available, Jarrett recommended Bobby for it, and that's how Bobby went to Australia as a Booker. And then, yeah. You're right. Bobby came back in November of 74, wrestled in Los Angeles for a week, uh, went to St. Louis for the holidays, and was back in the Southeast by January 7, actually December 75, 74 rather, because he wrestled in Georgia and won the Cadillac tournament. He wrestled in, right. I don't know if it was Pentacle or something, and then he wrestled, he was doing a commentary recording solely on Florida Wrestling in January of 75. And, uh, yeah, he was going to be the booker down there. And then, you know, of course, in February was when the plane crash was. Yeah, the Cadillac tournament, you him. The Cadillac tournament that he won here, was a, that was that was all part of work, too, because Cadillac eventually wound up with Bob Armstrong. But, but uh, yeah, that was uh, all of that happened just before I went over there. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Bobby Shane had been such a... Uh, you know, the young wrestler had, had been such a big fan favorite here. Uh, his teaming with Doug Gilbert was uh, when I first uh, I'd gotten out of the Army, and I, I they were one of the first tag teams. And, of course, the infamous Charlie Smith picture with uh, uh, Shane and Doug Gilbert, him and Charlie, the ref, raising their hands, winning the Georgia uh, tag team belts. But, you know, he had, a, he had a lot of fans that were, even as a young guy, who were, you know, older and uh, older ladies that sat around ringside. And when he left here, you know, this was before cable and uh, before a lot of the national magazines were were, were out there. Uh, and and so he went to Alabama, then he went to Florida, and he went around. But he, he came back into Georgia, and we announced that he was coming in. And he came down off of the stage with his rope and, uh, and, and everything, and his cigar and his handlebar mustache. 
and uh, these folks just, you know, it was a real jaw dropper for him. Uh, he 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 had honed it by that point, and he was, uh, you know, it was he had he really worked on that persona. And when he brought it back to Georgia, uh, it, it was just a it was a big shocker for the for the fans who expected the uh, clean cut Bobby Shane to come down off the stage. Right, and going back to uh, to Jarrett when when um, Shane got ready to go to Australia, Jerry Lawler happened to be working here in Georgia at the time as well, and Shane gave him the crown and the and the king gimmick, gave him the permission to do the king gimmick. Of course, he made a bigger, you know, he's he's best known out of all those that that use that gimmick. Mm-hmm. Um, He's the most known for it, but he actually got it from Shane and got his first crown from Shane. Um, now, when when he was here in Georgia, Jay, as, as a babyface, um, was Sherry part of his gimmick at all? Because I've seen pictures no. of him as the young guy, but and Sherry's in the picture. Uh, no, um, she was not. She was not part of his ring uh, ring persona. No. You know, he, she, he she was with him in Mobile as well. Uh, she, uh, uh, when Shane first came in here, he actually was under a mask. And uh, Challenger, uh, right? Is that know, what he was called? Uh, yeah, you know, Gilbert was just coming off the pro, the pro professional with his mask gimmick, and would wear it again occasionally. But uh, Shane first wore the mask, and and I think it was the assassins that. Uh, that worked worked with him on where he unmasked. I won't swear to it, but uh, yeah, that that was uh, that was his when he first came in. That's that's the way he came in as the challenger with the with the, with the mask, and he wore the stars, you know, and the stars, the red, white, and blue, and uh, he was just really over with the fans, his baby face. Well, if I ain't mistaken, Jamie, you may have, I may be wrong. Here again, I'm, I was a fan, and I'm and my mind's not what it used to be. But I'm thinking he was here before the Challenger gimmick. I think that was the uh, second he, trip through here. The first time he came through here is the Boy Wonder. Uh, and, and they were promoting him as 19 years old. And, and what, uh, uh, what year was what year was that, Bobby? Uh, you, <laughs> it, it's yeah. 2017, I think. But no, I don't remember. <laughs> I'm just. I'm just in my well, mind because I think when he came back under the hood, uh, people were speculating that's who it was, but they wasn't sure. And I can't yeah, remember. That, I can't remember was, why or whatever. But that's just sticking in my head. That's one of the names that were being uh, tossed about as to who he was. Yeah, like but said, I'm thinking I, he came in. He was. He did did a run through here as the boy wonder, as being uh, 18, 19 years old or whatever they were promoting him as. Right. But and like one other I little said, bit I, of trivia: the the picture you're talking about with uh, with uh, Charlie and Doug and Bobby Shane. Uh, yeah. W- one of those belts is right over here in my little case. I'm looking at it right now. Right. Uh, you know who's got the other one? I have no idea. Uh, but like I said, I got out of the army in September of '68, uh, and you know it was a couple of months. I was looking for a radio job, so. It was a couple of months before I started really getting back into wrestling again. So that boy wonder trip could have been, you know, prior to. It wasn't uh, a long run, but I think he, I think if you look back at some of the earlier results from previous years, you'll find him coming through. And that okay. was his second run when he came through with the mask. The uh, uh, 
uh, here again, we're, go- we're going way ahead, but you probably remember this too, Jay. He is, uh, Bobby Shane is directly the reason that Ricky Gibson uh, yes. got over as well as he got over here. Yes. The little deal they yes. did in the auditorium on a Friday night. Yes. I I, I think he had, uh, I think he'd already uh, gotten uh, Winston as his valet by that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, uh, yes, that, that's what I remember. Yeah. Do you uh, do you uh, uh, Al? Do you do you remember anything about uh, after Sherry about Winston being his valet? Uh yes, yes. Um, Sherry had left um, the act in '73 when I was in Florida. So, but yeah, yeah. And Winston became Bobby's uh, valet when Bobby was in Georgia uh, in '73, and that was right before he left in '74. Actually, to backtrack for a minute, uh, Bobby was in George Room 66. Okay. Uh, that uses uh, him and Mario Glenzo. They were tag team champions. They were feuding with the Infernos and J.C. Dykes back in There you go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I, was, uh, I was a little tied up at that uh, period of right. time, so <laughs> I didn't remember you know, that. Around that, right. around that same time frame, when, when they were here in Georgia, uh, Mario was still making trips to... Uh, to work in Dothan, and one of the one of the cards he was on, they advertised Shane to be his tag team partner, but Shane didn't show up. Oh wow! And um, I don't remember who it was. They were Mario was working a program with a tag team, and he kept he kept teaming with different people, and he was going to bring in Shane, but Shane never came in. Um, Sherry was in Mobile with with Bobby, and uh, she kind of dropped by the wayside uh, by the end of 71. I don't know if she was just staying in Florida or what the deal was, but by the time she kind of dropped out of the scene, and one of the – it was either the wrestler or inside wrestling. I've got a copy of the article, but I don't remember which magazine it was. Uh, ran a, a story. Uh, Shane and, and Terry Garvin were in the middle of a, a program with Bob Kelly and Ken Lucas, and they ran a ran a story where uh, Sherry was uh, had gotten fired because she had uh, developed a crush on Ken Lucas, and she they were, they were she was giving secrets away to him and uh, you know, all that. and that's why they fired him. And and she was gone from Mobile for a while, but. But he and Garvin, and of course Jimmy was there too, but Jimmy was only like 16, 17 years old. Mm. He would wrestle periodically, but he was mainly Terry's manager. They had right. a little guy, and I don't know, never saw him work with uh, Shane anywhere else, but there was a little guy, he kind of, if, if Bobby and Jay remembered Tommy Weathers, the guy was an identical, he looked identical to Tommy Weathers, and they called him um, Beauregard. And they dressed him like a court jester. Of course, Shane and Terry Garvin wore the crowns and the capes and carried the scepters. And they dressed this guy like a court jester with the with the curled shoes with the bells on them. And he was a little bitty guy, about you know five foot six, and weighed about a hundred pounds. And uh, they called him Beauregard, and he was around for a couple weeks, and then he was gone. Winston was never with Shane in, as as far as his valet. Now, he came in and worked in Mobile. <clears throat> his, 
He was a guy from uh, Windsor, Ontario. His name was Richard Laframboy. And uh, he um, he also, before he became Shane's valet, he wrestled in Florida under the name Don Ritchie. And then uh, after he became Winston, he worked as Sir Winston. Uh, he came in <clears throat> Mobile working as Redbeard uh, in 73 or 74, and then came back in 76 as Sir Winston um, and only did a couple of shots. But um, um, where was I going with that? But anyway, that's what, what Shane had uh, as far as valets in Mobile. Now, I, I, he also had a guy, and I don't know where else. I never know this guy working anywhere but Tampa, a guy by the name of Stephen the Body. Yeah. Um, was was Shane's valet down there, and and Shane was 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 very good about you know meeting people either who who you know lived in his apartment complex or something, and he he'd get them a job you know either mm-hmm. working as his valet or whatever. He was uh, he was very very popular you know, in the community outside of, of wrestling fans. As far as that, he was very persona, you know, had a very good persona and everything. And, um, but, you know, he just, he he was made such an impression as far as everywhere he, he went. Um, and I don't know if he, um, he ever had a, another female valet after Sherry or not. So he had, Seemed like he had somebody when he was in Australia with him, but I don't remember for sure. I want to say he had a girl named Sue something or other with him when he was in Australia. Well, there, there was a um, a girl that worked for the TV station, and she was a very, very pretty blonde. And uh, he, she took some pictures with Bobby. And, in fact, I had emailed a wrestling guy in Australia many years ago, and I asked him, like, who she was, and yeah, they called her Miss Channel 9, and Channel 9 in Australia was where they had the TV wrestling, and she was just someone who worked for, like, the, she would, like, bring the wrestlers, walk them back and forth to the ring, and open the ropes for the wrestlers and stuff like that, and, uh, but he might have had someone else in Australia, too, I'm not really That's sure. That's the same girl I'm talking about in Australia. Her name was Sue Curry. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. Yeah, very pretty. Yeah. <laughs> but um Let me throw a story in that got nothing to do with nothing. Okay. Last week when we were when we were out in Vegas, somebody brought up the <laughs> brought up the story. Uh they they introduced Scrappy as the man who killed Bobby Shane's dog. Oh yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> when when Bobby left Atlanta to go to Australia he had this dog. I don't know what kind of dog it was. It was a huge white dog. It was a gorgeous dog. And, a Samoyed. Uh, oh, Scrappy, Scrappy and his dad took the dog. And, uh, I mean, this was a big dog. I mean, you would have thought the dog would have eat you up or something. And, uh, uh, yeah, they were telling, you know, this is the guy that kills Shane's dog. Scrappy was getting, he didn't get <laughs> upset, but he was kind of, you know, taken back by the way he was introduced. And, uh, Scrappy t- and I didn't remember the story, but I, when I went to work over there, Scrappy was traveling with me when he was a kid. Uh, I say a kid; he's younger than me. He, uh, he, uh, the dog was at home. I mean, I seen the dog around. Well, anyway, the story is there was a thunderstorm. The dog was home by itself, and the dog was afraid of thunder. And they had a thunderstorm, and the dog had a heart attack, and died. Right. <laughs> but he's a, he's 
he's the guy known as the <laughs> killer of Shane's dog. <laughs> and right. that, that's well, another funny. That's another funny thing with that was because for years I had wondered whatever happened to the dog Klondike. There was a great picture, a Christmas picture of Bobby with Klondike, and Bobby's hugging the dog. You see a Christmas tree in the background. And when Bobby got his award in uh, Vegas at CAC 11 years ago, I was at the table with uh, Bobby Simmons. I was at the table with you and uh, Charlie and uh, Scrappy. And um, and we were talking about that. And then that's what Scrappy said to me. He goes, yeah, I'm the one who had the dog, who got the dog when Bobby went to Australia. And Scrappy had told me then that story as well, how, you know, was afraid of the thunder and how he died during a thunderstorm and, uh, you know, and, and yeah, the dogs do get very, you know, scared by thunder and fireworks and all that, so, you know, it's a sad story, but yeah, beautiful dog. Well, everybody's got to be known for something, so I guess that's good as anything. <laughs> 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 well, it, it it ties you in, that's for sure. You know. <laughs> How close were you to Bobby Shane? Well, not really, but to his dog, I was very close. You know that. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I do think that um, I do think there was a pretty good relationship between uh, between uh, Scrappy's dad Charlie and Bobby. I think they had become. They were, they were, of course, comrades in the business. Charlie working around the office and so forth. But uh, I think they had developed a pretty good friend. Well, it has to be a good friendship because uh, the way I understand it, Bobby loved that dog, and for him to leave him with 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 Charlie says a lot for Charlie and Scrappy that uh, you know he trusted him and and, and uh, knew that the dog would be taken care of. Shane always seemed to he would find seem to find somebody in the territory that wasn't even a wrestler, you know, somebody that worked in the office or ring announcer or something that he usually got close to a mobile. The um guy who uh did the ring announcing at the house shows at Mobile and had back in the fifties been the host of the live television in Mobile, uh was a guy by the name of Jack Bitterman. Uh, Jack also worked for the Mobile Press Register, so he did all the write-ups in the paper as far as, you know, the results and the upcoming matches. And and sometimes the the Mobile paper gave more press to wrestling than any other paper of any other territory or city that I know of. I mean, they would get sometimes, you know, a quarter of a page write-up with, you know, inserted headlines like, you know, like a real news article. But that was because Jack Bitterman was on the payroll of both the paper and Lee Fields. But it never failed. Whenever Jack, whenever um, Bobby would do a TV interview, he would always mention his dear friend Jackie Bitterman. And, I, and anybody that didn't know, you know, I wasn't an old-timer that knew the old television show or went to the matches in Mobile, they had no clue as to who Jackie Bitterman was. Um but he 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 and Bitterman seem to to have gotten close during his time in Mobile. But um, just it's just unbelievable the the impact that he made for such a well I can't say a short career because he you know he had been in the business you know ten twelve years when when he died because he started so early. Um, right. Mm-hmm. But. Um, 
Now, you, I'll for clear this up. Was he related to Joe Schoenberger, the referee in St. Louis? Uh, no, no. They related no at, all? at all? Just happened to have the same mm-hmm. last name? Yeah, yeah. And, in fact, it was funny because I had asked um, his cousin, who her and I were email buddies still after all these years, I I asked her, you know, I go, you guys have any relation? And she said, no. She goes, and you would think with a name like Schoenberger, we would be related, but we're not no relation at all. So, uh, yeah, there's a there's a few Schoenbergers who aren't related to them. But, yeah, they were no relation at all. And it's weird, too, that they both live in St. Louis, but, nope, no relation. <laughs> and we're both involved we, in the wrestling business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh yeah, and going back to what you were saying about Bobby getting close with people, um, either like in the business or even outside the business, there was a um, actually it was a wrestling fan who used to post on the message boards. Uh, his father, his this guy's dad, was a photographer, and I think I was in I think in Florida, and yeah, Mike, taken, I, you talk, Mike Ballman is who you, you're talking about. Right. I can't remember yep. his dad's name, yeah. Right, and Bobby got his dad a job taking pictures for the After Magazines, I think, right? That's the story right. Mike told, at least. Yeah. yeah. That so, and you know, he did the uh, a lot of the photography for the uh, programs in, in Florida. Oh, um, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, right. You know, Bob, you know, Bobby had, he definitely had, you know, he had, like, he was a perfectionist when he came to wrestling. He had a very serious side, what I've been told. And, you know, but he also had, like, a very good side, too, where he would actually, you know, go out of his way to help people, and he really did. And I think that that's part of probably what attracted me to him as well because he did have that very, very good side, you know, too, that, uh, you know, you don't always hear about in uh you know, every day, you know, be the athletes or entertainers or stuff like that. It was nice, it was nice to hear stuff like that about him, you know. Was he from a, a large family or was Because, I, I, like I said, I know nothing about yeah. his, his background. Well, you know, it's funny. He was an only child, but his dad was one of nine kids. And Gee. his dad, I'm sorry? I just, wow, that's a... Uh, uh, I guess he then did he have a lot of cousins and things of that nature? Oh yeah, yeah. His uh well it's funny, of the nine kids, most of the nine kids, uh, Bobby's father's siblings only had one or two or three maybe at the most. But the older brother had eleven kids, but he had two different Jeez. marriages. But yeah, eleven kids. So Bobby had maybe twenty first cousins, something like that. But he was an only child and uh and it's funny, like, you know, when Bobby was a kid, he was he was very mischievous. Like he would go he would ram his truck right into like his uncle's chin or something. Or or like one time, like not so funny, he went and he, he kicked one of his aunts who was pregnant at the time, you know, but he was like five or six years old. I mean, he didn't know any better of course. But one time he was like a little older, he one of his uncles right in the leg and his uncle who I met and he was a nice guy, his uncle would take him right back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but you know, Bobby had a lot of like that unbound energy and that's when you know, he he became a wrestling fan at a very young age and his dad took him to the Y M C A and he started wrestling there and then like the later at Harry Cook's gym. 
you know, but yeah, no, Bobby was from, uh, you know, his father had a big family and, uh, yeah, yeah, he, uh, yeah, a lot of first cousins and a lot of energy and yeah, he was very focused on getting into wrestling and he did. Were you, uh, were you able to get close to any of the family members? Uh, yeah. In fact, I used to go out there every year. His uncle, uh, became the best friend I ever had. His uncle really, and I really bonded. We hit it off. He passed away a few years ago now. Uh, him, you know, his cousin and I, we still email each other once a week. And, you know, one of his aunts, her and I, we, we call each other once a week as well. And, you know, his other aunts and uncles who have since passed away, you know, some of the ones who were still living sure. there, I met the family. Uh, I met the family in, uh, about 15 years ago at this point, you know, and they, they treated me like, um, like, uh, when I would visit them, they, they treated me like visiting royalty almost. Well, they were so, they were impressed that, you know, that, you know, that I came that halfway across the country because of their nephew and, you know, and, and they really were, they were, they became my second family really, you know, chief. So I'm an honorary Schoenberger. <laughs> let me ask you, did any of them, any of his gear survive anywhere that anybody oh, had? Yes, yes. It's, oh, that's a great story, too. When I got back from St. Louis the first time, uh, there was a wrestler in St. Louis, Chuck Riley. I think he wrestled mostly in that area, and he was a referee later at wrestling at the state. You know, when Bobby died, Bobby's parents gave Chuck Riley Bobby's wrestling gear. And Chuck's son, Jim, after I got back to St. Louis that first time 15 years ago, Jim Riley um, emailed me. as like, you know, I have some Bobby Shane stuff. I'll be happy to send it to you. And he sent me he sent me a couple of things. When I went there to visit again in 2004, when I went to meet Bobby's uncle, really, and I went to see Jim Riley. We had dinner together, then went back to the house. He gave me a whole bunch of Bobby's ring attire. Uh, and it was like stuff I recognized in pictures in the magazines. I mean, it was like he used to wear this singlet with the S on it, uh, with like S for Shane on it, and uh, like some of the wrestling tights he wore, like the long-drawn tights. <laughs> you know, so I ended up having some of that stuff. Um, you know, a couple of capes. Um, but what I did with that, um, I sent some of it to some of Bobby's friends in wrestling. Uh, there's a wrestler, um, Greg Lake. Right. And, uh, I was going to ask you if you'd ever met Greg Lake, because he and, he and oh, Bobby were close. Right. Oh, Greg, Greg's a great guy. Greg and I became pretty friendly. And I sent one of Bobby's wrestling things to Greg Lake. I sent something to Dean Silverstone, because Dean helped me a lot also was the stuff I was doing and getting into the CAC and uh so yeah, yeah. Um yeah, Greg Lake definitely. Uh Greg speaks very highly of Bobby all the time, as does Dean and you know, Bob Kelly of course did also, you know. So uh so yeah, I saw some of Bobby's wrestling stuff, but some of it I gave to his wrestling friends also, you know. As somebody who wasn't in the business per se how were you able to uh, crack that kayfabe uh, element in order to get these people to open up to you? Well, Bruce, Scott Teal. Scott Teal's whatever happened to. You know, it's funny. Um, I'll backtrack for 
just for a brief minute. In the early 90s, I was writing about Frankie Valli and the Four Thieves. Frankie Valli inspired me in a different way. And I could not break through that at all. I mean, and I was very disappointed. But I wrote about Bobby, and I got a favorable response from his mom. And then I saw some problems with Scott Peels, whatever happened to. And, you know, Scott would have the name, the addresses and phone numbers of a lot of wrestlers that he wrote about because it was mostly for the boys who wanted to keep in touch with each other. And so I would write to them. I didn't dare call them at that point. But I wrote to them. Like I wrote to Ken Ramey, um, Frankie Kane, I think, had written to Nick Bockwinkle, Don Curtis. Oh, you know, Don Curtis, in fact, called me at my house, and I wrote to him. I wasn't home, though, so then he wrote me. I wasn't home when he called, unfortunately. But, yeah, they all wrote back because, I mean, I, I think it meant something to them that, they go so highly, Bobby, so it meant something to them that, you know, someone's, you know, so far apart from when he wrestled and passed away was writing about him and interested. They were very interested in what I was doing, and they were very responsive. And then uh, both Dean Silverstone and Bob Kelly encouraged me to join the CAC, and that's how I got into that aspect, so... uh yeah, yeah, so really Scott Fields, whatever happened to really was the door opening I needed because I wrote to those guys, and you know, I was very respectful when I wrote, and you know, I'm glad most of them responded. Some didn't, you know, most did. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Was uh, mentioning Frankie Valley? was that another thing that you had a lot of interest in was groups of that era? Well, uh, yeah, uh, I'm a big oldies fan. Um, my favorite music is music of the 50s and 60s. And one thing about Frankie Valley that inspired me, um, you know, I'm visually, I'm legally blind, you know, so things like that inspire me. You know, Frankie Valley had lost his hearing for a while. He went deaf, and mostly he lost most of his hearing. But he was still able to perform on stage, and he could follow where the group was, like in the songs, by through the vibrations in his feet from the stage. Like he could follow along on stage. No one ever knew that he lost his hearing. You know, I found that very inspiring. And I wanted to, and I collected all kinds of articles and stuff about them, you know, about him and the group. And, you know, and I always wrote a little on the side just as a hobby. And there was never any books written about Frankie Valli in the fourth season. I had enough material to write, you know, a short book. And I started writing, and I tried contacting him. I tried through many, many different areas to contact him. I think he ended up thinking I was some kind of a nut. Because <laughs> the last thing I had sent to him came back unopened. But I hold on the thing, all mail to Frankie Valley is this address is coming back um returned, refused by address E. So he must have oh, wow. a nut. Yeah. Hmm. Well uh, you, know, you you mind do you mind telling me how old you are? Oh, I'm fifty three. Oh, you're a youngster to be interested oh, well, yeah. in music. <laughs> to be interested in music of that era. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny. Like, I always, even, even like TV shows, like, TV shows I like for well, shows from the 70s I grew up with. But, you know, my favorite TV shows were shows of the 50s and 60s mostly, you know, and well, 70s also. Yeah. Thank but, God uh, for DVDs and things like that. You were able to see everything that you. <laughs> oh, definitely, uh, yes. What, what, yes. One other thing about the, the Four Seasons, uh, well, two. One, did you try uh, getting through to Bob Gaudio to see if he would uh, make an introduction? Uh, I couldn't get through to him, but I was able to contact one of the other group members, not one of the originals, but like a guy, Joe Long, who replaced one of the originals back in 1966. I even went to his house. In uh, New Jersey, and we ha- I even interviewed him at his house. Actually, this guy Joe Long was in the group in '66 through '70, '74, I think. And you know, I was hoping that he could have at least gotten through to Frankie Valley for me, but not nah, Frankie Valley for whatever reason just didn't want to be bothered. But the thing is, you right. know, he never told he never told me directly. Not interested to go away, so I kept trying, you know, because. You know, no response doesn't mean, well, sometimes I don't see the writing on the wall either, you know, but but to me it's like if you don't tell me, go away, I'm not interested, I'll keep trying to at least get a response, but right. like I said, he probably thought I was a nut at that point, so, yeah. But then the Bobby Shane stuff worked out, and, you know, and that was much more rewarding on a very personal, emotional level. That uh, you know, thank you, Bob. Stuff doesn't even matter, you know. But uh, I'm glad the Bobby Shane stuff led me to so many great blessings and friendships between his family and his wrestling friends, and uh, even one of his high school friends, whom I became pretty friendly too. So, you know, worked out on a lot of different levels for me. That's that's a great story, and it unto itself of uh, you know your being able to uh, get a tie-in with the family that much and. And be able to uh, collect that information. Have you? Uh, have, are you working with uh, Scott to uh, put together a book? Uh, no, no. You know, the thing is, you know, I don't have. I don't think I have enough detailed information to really put a book together on him. And at this point, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people who work with him extensively, you know, are older and they're, they're passing on and stuff like that, but mm-hmm. I don't think I have enough information to uh, to put a book out on Bobby Shane. Unfortunately, it would be nice if there was, but yeah, I really don't think I have enough detailed information to do that, you know. Well, you sound like you do. I mean, you've uh, you've collected, talked to a lot of people and family and with the uh, memorabilia you've collected, uh, you you sound like you're You've got as much as anybody else I've ever talked to. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. But, uh, I mean, yeah. The like, shame uh, of it is there's not much video footage out there of, of Bobby. I know of, of three bits of matches, and that's it. I mean, you know, there's just not anything yeah. out there of him. No, no. And, well, you know, the sad thing is that, you know, the uh, promotions didn't save a lot of the old footage. They just taped over it the next week right. and closed the tapes were expensive back in those days. So yeah, there's not that much not that much for his role of him. Maybe like I said, three matches maybe at the most, I think. And they're uh, not even probably matches. I mean they're just Sure. 
Bobby Simmons, you know about that taping over the uh, the old three quarter inch uh, to do the next show, right? Well, shoot, one to three quarter was a two inch. A two inch, um, I'm sorry, not a, the three a two quarter. inch. A two inch blank tape was was approximately four hundred and fifty something bucks, um, and it was just cost prohibitive to to do new tapes. Not only that. Storage was was another thing. Uh, you had to have a place to keep all this stuff, and uh, it was just, you know. And, and let's face it, you know, we've talked about this before, guys. We never thought this was going to end. We thought this yeah. was going to last uh, an eternity. Uh, you know, none of us none of us saw the internet. None of us saw the 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 advent of the the different things that went on, and, and just. So, you know, there wasn't any need to save it. We didn't think it would be uh, valuable. I mean, I think about how many programs I threw away, and I think about how many posters I threw away. It just, you know, breaks my heart because uh, there's a great market out there for that stuff now. Yeah, well, you know, hindsight's funny, funny, but I'll tell you a bit of cruel irony for me. I'm a fan of um, old-time soap operas. Like, I loved a couple of soap operas from the 60s and early 70s. None of that exists on tape either for the same reason. That the tapes yep. were so expensive, they taped over each, uh, they taped over for the next week's episode. So it's yep. like, you know, on both, on both sides, it's like, I'm doomed. It's like, there's no old wrestling, no old soap operas, both for the same reason. You know, it was expensive then. Like you said, storage also. You know, there's always a keep it all back then. <laughs> yeah, uh, I agree with you. And uh, there was so so much of the soap operas at one time on the networks that was a mainstay of daytime television. Yeah. And uh, they just they just couldn't. And I, I'm a uh, fan of uh, old-time radio. And... Mm. Uh, and you know it's the same way they acetate recordings of uh, a lot of it had has been around since then, and with the digital methods of uh, you know cleaning up stuff now has made a lot of it available to fans but it's uh, it's 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 unfortunate, as Bobby Simmons said that it's you know you never thought that was going to end during the time that it existed and yeah. uh it it you really felt like why 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 do I need to Keep this one because there'll be another one next week. You know, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, back in our day, there was no such thing as home video or anything like that. So you know, you just never thought about right. stuff like that. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna give away how much of a mark I was as a kid. I used to audio tape the television shows, and what I wouldn't give to have those now. Just the audio, because I would set it. You know, that's the, the days of the old, you know, little cassette oh, yeah. players with the with the plug-in microphone. I used to, oh, yeah. I yeah. used to, you know, record the audio off the wrestling programs and listen to them over and over again and relive that all that stuff in my head. Somebody several years ago sent me a a cassette that they had from a 1974 Dothan show. TV show, and I had that for you, and I I lost that along the way, and I just so much of that stuff that I had as as a kid, I, I would give anything to have now. But you just yep. never know, right? No. And uh, how not only just to, just uh, sorry, just to have the tapes, but also to have something to play it on. It's uh, yeah. 
<laughs> that was back. I used to tape off the wrestling from the TV shows also. I used to go with the tape recorder right in front of the TV. And, yeah, I used to do the same thing, and I don't have those tapes anymore either. And, like I said, who, who thinks to keep that stuff? Even my old magazines I don't have really anymore. And, you know, and, oh man, uh, I had I had an old army footlocker full of, of magazines, and I gave them away when I moved from from Mobile. Um, and then, uh, you know, wish I hadn't. And then started buying them when I discovered eBay. I started mm-hmm. buying uh, a lot off of eBay, and I probably had another couple. Had you know collected a couple hundred, and. Uh, lost all of them in a fire when my parents' house burned. But luckily, uh, all of the 30 years' worth of, of newspaper clippings that I had, um, that I had, had regained, because when I was a kid, um, I, I would get the newspaper clippings out of the mobile paper, and my grandmother lived in Pensacola, and she would send me the the, the newspaper ads from Pensacola for, for wrestling. And I had a scrapbook of all that and pictures that I got and you know, autographs I'd gotten through the years and all that stuff. And somewhere between all the moves and the divorce and everything else, that came up missing. And I would give my eye teeth to find that because there's photo. I've, I've replaced all of the clippings after many years of going and sitting in, in the, the library in Mobile and getting, you know, things off microfish and all that stuff. But, uh, um, and I'm, I've slowly built that up. Uh, I've got... Uh, 16 two-inch binders full of all those clippings, which I have now scanned and, and have on an external hard drive now. So in case you know anything ever happens to them, I've got them at least saved now. But um, but I had pictures that I've never been able to replace. Some of them I've, I've managed to find and, and replace, but I had pictures that I have yet to come across again. Um, programs that I had, you know, um, that I've never been able to find again. But, you know. Well, everybody's heard those horror stories about when they move out of their parents' house and their mothers uh, throw away their baseball cards. And, yeah. uh, you know, and how much they're worth. Well, mostly with baseball cards and things like that. I, I gave them away myself. But uh, my Marvel and DC comic books, my mother was uh, uh, nice enough to uh, not not get rid of those, and so I've got two foot lockers full of those upstairs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, I'm, I was when I lived in Germany, um, in the late '60s. We didn't have television on the army base, um, at least where where I, you know, they didn't have American television. You could pick up the German channels, but you would never. F troop in German is funny. Um, but uh, the big thing, what what we did as as kids were we would collect comic books and we would go door to door in the apartment complexes we lived in and trade comic <clears throat> trade comic books with kids that were total strangers and sure. i developed a love for uh sergeant fury and the howling commandos and yes, sir. Uh, just just absolutely loved them and had a ton of them and you know again that was one of the things that fell by the wayside when in, in growing up and um uh, I was telling Scott Teal that one time, and he scanned and sent me a bunch of them. And there's a program; they're all on a disc now. And there's a program you can put on your computer that'll actually let you bring them up and read them. 
You know, it's, and they right. look just like as if you had the comic books in front of you, and it's it's amazing. I, and, and, I wanted to do a comic book tie-in with pro wrestling, and, uh, you know, I got Jim Melby to clear it, and uh, Marvel was okay with me using the names and the uh, covers, but DC would not do that. And uh, so that was the end of that story because the covers of the comics were, you know, essential to to having enough material to, uh, you know, you know, to to fill for the story. But since you were right. in Germany, I'll ask you, I'll ask you one thing: uh, Did uh, Hogan's Heroes play in Germany? Not that I can remember. <laughs> I mean, I was there in '68 and '69. Was that? I get. Yeah, it was already a show then because it, it debuted in what sixty six, sixty seven, something like that. Sure. And even sure, even <clears throat> we had friends that we lived in Mannheim at Camp Sullivan, and uh, there was like that's I said, you could roller. pick up. What's that? How did that's you get the roller? Yeah. Huh. But uh, we could like we could pick up. Television, but it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, every once in a while, you'd catch an American show that had been dubbed in German. But <clears throat> we had friends that lived in Kaiserslautern, who there for some reason they were able to pick up American television. You know that was not dubbed. And uh, right. So, you know, I, when we well, would visit them, I would catch stuff. But most of the time, I, the only thing I remember. Is I never never saw an actual German show. I just saw commercials, and they always had. They were always animated, and it was always a rabbit and something else doing goofy stuff. But that's all I ever saw. I never saw an actual show. Well, it's my understanding that uh, a lot of the TV talk shows during that period, uh, Armed Forces Television would get the audio of. You know, like Johnny Carson and things like that. Yeah, and, no, I and, listened to uh, a lot of Armed Forces Radio. In fact, Armed Forces Radio would run the old uh, radio serials uh, from the mm-hmm. 30s and 40s. I, I listened to The Shadow all the time. I listened to uh, a lot of uh, old Abbott and Costello stuff. And uh, right. for some reason, uh, you know, Armed Forces Radio played this stuff. Sure. You guys just weren't stars. Stars? I'm sitting, I'm sitting at home, and I get a I get a note from a guy that I went to school with. I have not seen him. I graduated in 1972, and I guess graduation night was probably the last time I laid on him. His name was Tommy Masters. He joined the army. Him and another guy that I went to school with that were we were all friends. They they joined the army right out of high school. And uh, they were a lot braver than me because they were playing Vietnam at the time, and uh, uh, I was oh, yeah. a year away from being 18, and I was not going. So, uh, you know, no sooner than I had to. But anyway, I get this note from him. And he was stationed in Italy, and he said that his sergeant and him had become friends, and the sergeant would invite him over on Saturdays, and they would uh, people in the states were mailing VHS tapes to them to watch American TV. And he said he looked forward to Saturdays going over because that was, you know, just something from home. And he said he went over one Saturday, and they were showing Georgia Championship Wrestling on their tape. Oh, oh, I, yeah. was refer- yes. I was refereeing. And he said that 
He said, wait a minute. He said, that's Bobby Simmons. I know him. I went to high school. And he said he became a celebrity in Italy because he knew me. Wow. <laughs> he just had to be a there star. <laughs> and then whoever knew I would, that my face would show up in Italy on TV for anything. How about that? Yeah, I, I traded tapes. I traded uh, VHS tapes with with some folks. Uh, you know, this is before cable and uh, got big. And uh, the satellite, of course, didn't exist. And uh, I, one, one of the first uh, AWA shows that I saw, I saw a couple uh, from Colorado while I was out there in the Army. But uh, first, really, where you could follow a storyline uh, of uh, shows was uh, the AWA. Then uh, I, I traded Georgia Championship Wrestling tapes with them. Uh, and, uh, you know, they lived in the Midwest somewhere. So tape trading was, you know, very big at one time. Huh. Well, when I lived in Germany, I shared a stage with Red Fox. That's my 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 star story. I was a ten year old boy in, at the uh, NCO club, and they were having a uh, a review there, and I got called up out of the audience to help the uh, magician that was on stage. And Red Fox happened to be the MC. I should I, I say you were a ten year old boy at the Red Fox show. That was an education. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm really surprised that, it, that a ten-year-old could get in to see Red Fox. Uh, well, like I said, he was just the MC. I'm sure he he did the more adult stuff after the uh, after it was, it was pastime. But I mean, it was the NCO club. I went in there with my parents all the time. I saw all kind of people. Red Fox said when he was in the service, he backed up so far one time during a battle, he bumped into a general. He said, the girl asked him, he said, son, why are you running? And he said, because I cannot fly. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Al, uh, getting personal again, uh, uh, did uh, your, your, your sight condition, was that a, uh, from, from birth, or did something happen to you at a later time that uh, caused that? No, it was it was from birth. Um, the uh, optic nerves in the eyes never really fully developed. So uh, yeah, yeah, it's been from birth, and uh, you know, and it's it's funny, you know, looking at me. Unless I, I I use my cane only when I need it. I don't really walk with a cane around the you know around my neighborhood. I don't. I I've been I bring one to Vegas when I go to the CAC though, and uh, it's easier on airports and stuff like that, but. Looking at me, you know, I don't look legally blind, which when I was a kid, I thought that was a good thing. But, like, as an adult, it's like, no, you need that understanding, though. Not, not sympathy, but understanding. It's like, right. well, you know, because if someone tells you, oh, you know, just go over there by the thing, it's like, well, you know, you got to show me because I can't see the thing over there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so, but, yeah, no, it was, it was from birth. And, uh, you know, um, I, I think that's that's probably what made me sensitive to a lot of different things like that. Like I said, you know, with Frankie Valley with the hearing loss, that was inspiring to me that he continued and you know, reading about Bobby and stuff like that. So I think stuff like that always stands out with me because, you know, it's just something that, you know, other people go through. Yeah, I think everyone has their own stuff they go through and everyone, you know, it's interesting how people uh, deal with stuff like that, I guess, you know. Sure. Now, for those that, that don't know, and I, I, there's 
I don't know a whole lot of background on her either. What was what was Sherry's? I know he and she and Bobby were married at one time. I know they split up before he passed away. Uh, I know she has has since passed away herself. Um, where or do you, you may not even know this, but where did where did they meet? How did how did they become or did she became involved in his his career and all that? Well, uh, they met in British Columbia when he was wrestling in the Pacific Northwest in 1968. He had been up there, um, yeah, around 68, I guess. And that's when he met Sherry and they got married. And, in fact, you know, um, when Bobby wrestled for Roy Shires in 1970 in San Francisco, Sherry went down there with him. I mean, they were married at that point. And she was his valet, and they have, there's a program, like a fan club bulletin, of himself and Jerry Monte, that they were taking partners at that point, and Sherry's there with him, and Sherry was acting as their valet. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, uh, Bobby decided to use her as his valet after they got married, and, uh, you know, like you said, when he was in Georgia in 1970s, you know, she really didn't with him to the ring at that point. That was when he was with Doug Gilbert. But in Mobile, she was with him. In Florida, she was with him. And they split mm-hmm. up while he was in Florida. Uh, in 73, I think they split up. And the the sad thing is, after he died, he committed suicide. So, you know, they still, even though they were split up, you know, she still loved him. And according to uh, you know, Greg Lake, yeah, Bobby never stopped loving her either, so they still love each other even though they had split up. And yeah, and she committed suicide after he died. But yeah, they were married for about, I guess, five years before they split up. Hmm. Yeah. And an interesting thing is, um, yeah, sometimes people come out have the woodwork. And years ago, someone had emailed me because they knew I would know. Um, about, you know, someone was claiming to be uh, Sherry, you know, that this girl saying that, you know, his mother, her mother was, you know, Bobby's former valet, Sherry, and and she wanted to get pictures of him and her together, something for her mother for her birthday or whatever. And we're saying, and someone who thought they had known that Sherry had died, they asked me, I thought, no, no, Sherry definitely died. And the woman was saying, oh, no, 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 it was part of the storyline where, I was supposed to be distraught and kill myself after Bobby died and I was supposed to disappear. And which, you know, that was like total nonsense because the promotions back then, they didn't do stuff like that. They didn't have like, they didn't see the deaths back in those days, the territory days. Even McMahon wouldn't right. do it now for the most part. So it was like, it's like that never happened at all because Bobby and Sherry were separated, were divorced already when he died the plane crash. So he was, he was going out with someone else, actually, at that point. He mm-hmm. went to the funeral, so. Hmm. So she was originally you, a Canadian. Uh, yeah, did not yeah know that. she was Canadian. Yeah, yeah, where she was you, Canadian. Where do you, where do you live, Al? Uh, Long Island, Long Island, New York. 
You know, all those years as I came to New York and, and spent time on Long Island with the circus, I don't know why I never thought about contacting you because you and I have known each other for years. And I just, I just, I, I knew you lived in New York, but I just never, never thought about it. But oh, okay. Oh, wow, that's funny. Yeah. What uh, yeah. What part of Long Island do you live on? Uh, North Babylon. I'm on the South Shore in Suffolk County, so we're kind of a okay. kind of toward the middle of Long Island, but on the South Shore. Yeah. Yeah, I used hour. to do uh, Oceanside. Um, I would always stay in in Copake, oh, and wow. okay. uh, I would Copaque do Oceanside and and well, several of them. You know, on most of my oh, wow. most of the shows that I did were in Suffolk County. Oh, that's but, that's uh, too funny. <laughs> just I don't yeah. I have no clue why I never put that together for you and I to get together there. Yeah, no, that that would have been neat. Yeah, yeah, no, that would have been neat. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, Colpeg's not that far away. Colpeg's like a 15 minute drive. <laughs> yep. Well, uh, every yeah. chance I got, I drove over to Amityville to see if I could see a ghost. I never made it to Staten Island. I wanted to go over there and find the Godfather house, but but I never oh, did. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, in, in Amityville, they changed the uh, they changed the street name, they changed the house. The yeah, house but are you, different. Yeah, yeah. The, well, they changed the the street number. The, the, the street name is still the same, but the number itself is oh, yeah, the ad, actual changed. address okay. number is different. But, but oh, okay. I was able to find it. It wasn't all that hard to find. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's funny. In fact, I the day the first time I went there, uh, Bobby Simmons' um, late wife Debbie was she was as as nut about creepy stuff as I am. I called her, and I said, "Debbie, guess where guess where I just left?" And she said, "Where?" I said, "I went by the Amityville Horror House." She said, "You bastard!" She said, "Did you go knock on the door?" I said, "No, somebody lives there." She said, nah, "I'd have gone and knocked on the door and asked them to." I just want to go to the basement and see the red door. <laughs> oh yeah, sure. Uh, and oh, I called her. Uh, one of the next towns I was in, I uh, was in in Massachusetts, and I took an afternoon and drove over to Fall Rivers and went to um, the Lizzie Borden house. Of course, I had to call her to rag her about that as well. <laughs> <laughs> but. Well, yeah, you you definitely need to uh, try and put together something on Bobby. I agree. That's 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 a name that uh, you know not enough people know about, and he he had a profound impact on the business. And and you know people people say that that he had such a great future, but I don't I don't know that you know the business you know wasn't changing by the time he you know. He was killed, but it was it was less than a decade away. I definitely think he would have been a booker uh, involved mm, in the office, sure. involved in stuff like that at this point. As far as people talking about him being world champion, I don't know if that's the case because he was he was small, you know. Yeah, yeah, I and, think, uh, and he was he was better. I could definitely see him after after his active career becoming a manager or something like that because mm. that was his strong point. Yeah. He just, you know, he had that ability and this this goes back to what Jay was saying earlier. He was so loved as a babyface. Uh 
uh, yes. it, it always works, at least it did back in our day, that the, the more loved you were as a baby face, you were just as hated when you turned heel and vice versa. Much, if you were right, a hated heel, so. you know, you, you really got over when you became a baby face. Um, and Bobby can tell you that because of the people that came up and congratulated Ole Anderson for being on our side. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, Ole didn't exactly uh, endear himself to uh, to the fans, even when he was a babyface. But that's just Ole. Ole, you know, you mentioned Ole. It's funny, you know. You, you say Shane was only actually in the business for about twelve years, and yet here's some however many years later that he has has been gone, people still talk about him. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Ole Anderson only actually worked in the ring. I mean, physically, actually worked regularly, full time. He only worked about eight years. So, it's it's not how long you are in the business. It's the reputation that you build up for what you do. And the impact, impact you that, made, yeah. You know, yeah, you know, Oli's going to be talked about for years and years to come, as long as people remember wrestling as we know it. Shane's going to always be remembered. You know. And the superstation uh, really helped Ole's career too because he didn't really travel that much. You know, that's right. Uh, he, he didn't have to. You know, I mean, it was just you look. You know, it, it, yeah, the business evolved. When that superstation, when that satellite took off, the business as we know it changed. Yes. And uh, you yes. know, it was a uh, um, just a. Uh, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, you just had to be there to understand. Well, I mean, well, you know, know people first. talk about people talk about the WWE killing the regional booking offices, but uh, you know, I could say the you know the Superstation did the same thing. Uh, well, it it did in some respects, but but not not like not like it happened. Uh, uh, Barnett still respected the old boy network. He would not promote. He would not go promote in another guy's area. Sure. Um, you know, the things we get up in, in Michigan and Columbus, Ohio, and those places, uh, you know, uh, the Sheik was compensated. Uh, I mean, he, w- he was compensated. I was there when it happened, you know, when we first started running Columbus. And that would have that would have been a partnership that would have been invaluable to him uh, in the long run, uh, but he his greed wouldn't let him do it. And, sure. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, that's another story for another night. But when he, when he stole the house from us one night, that ended that, and that's the reason that we, we went up there and started running. Uh, so, you know, it's just a. Uh, yeah, it did in some respects. It changed the way people looked at the business. Absolutely, because uh, if you, you think about it, a guy was leaving the territory, and uh, you know, you, uh, with a, with an injury or something of that nature. Right, and you see it on the superstation, and then the next week he's uh, hailing Hardy again, working in Texas. Yeah, uh, yeah. From that respect, uh, so, it, it changed. It changed, and yeah, that's why I said you had to be a very special booker to be able to book the Georgia territory because of that TV, and that's why yeah. so many came through here that were not successful. They never developed the mentality to realize what they had. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, like him or not, 
only had the foresight to know what he had and to know how to manipulate it so that he didn't kill folks. Sure. And, and you know, we had promoters calling, begging to get their people on our TV. But we couldn't bring people in here and put them over on our TV and them not work for us. So it was, a, it was it was a strange bird, and but it, yeah, it, uh, the 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 promotion end of it still respected the other promoters, and uh, you know because I made the comment one time, we should buy us a bus or two buses, and load the heels on one and the baby faces on the other, and do a tour, just go across the country, because that TV was so strong we could have done that. And yes. Jim said, you know, Jim made the remark, "Well, that'll never happen." You know, he did, he did he didn't see what was coming in the not so distant future, but uh, yeah, he 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 still respected that. Uh, and whoever whoever thought uh, you know the business as it had existed for so many years that kayfabe would would go away as quickly as it did once oh, uh, it was die. implemented by WWE, and, and all because trying to get around paying those. Paying mm-hmm. those uh, yeah, athletic, athletic commissions, commissions in these yeah. towns they run in, but when he when he sidestepped that, they just came up with they just came up with something else. Sure, um, you know, and then here again we, uh, well, I don't know. That's another story for another night. We've talked about the Georgia deal and some of the things that was done, but anyway, yeah, but, just just it's remarkable that no longer than Shane was in the business, that he developed mm-hmm. such a persona that yes. 30, 35, 40 years later. People are still talking about it, and you're, and there is no footage out there. So most, a lot of the people have never seen him work. They never right. saw him work. And and as far as his work's concerned, you know, I've talked to people that said that have worked with him that said he was not a great worker. They said really? he was. They oh, said wow. his, you know, the persona, the everything, everything about it connected with. But as far as the actual in ring work, they said he was just just average. But it's just, it's just, you know, the persona that he created, and and it was so believable that he got over with it so well that, you know, here it is years later, and we're still talking about it. Right. Yep. Right. Maybe you know you know this, um, Alfred. I have got a photo of Shane. This is before he uh, did the heel gimmick when he was still a clean cut babyface. And uh, the red, white, and blue outfit um, that uh-huh. he wore, and he's with Kevin Sullivan, who is in a an identical outfit. And I have racked my brain trying to think where the two of them would have been in the same territory at that point. Now they were together in Mobile at the same time, mm-hmm. but Shane was already the long-haired uh, heel. And uh, Kevin was working there as uh, Johnny West. Right. But this this picture was is obviously way before then, probably a year or two prior to that, probably because I think uh, Kevin broke in the business in '69, so it was probably taken around that time frame. But I don't know where they would have been together at the same time. Right. I, I know the photo you're talking about. I've seen that. I have a I have a copy of that photo. Uh, and I don't know. I I don't I don't know either where they would have seen, but they know like they were together at the same time in Mobile, like you said. Uh, but Shane already had the uh, heel gimmick, and that photo was from before that. Um, right. 
I don't know. I mean, I don't know but Sullivan started in six. You know, like I said, maybe uh could have been like somewhere like Detroit. Maybe Sullivan had wrestled up there, but I don't know. I that's I was saying, and the only thing for. I could think of is I know I know Kevin started with Tony Santos and maybe Shane made an appearance up there at some point and they were you know, in, in New England, but I don't know. I'll have to ask mm. Tom Burke. He's the he's the the Tony Santos expert. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Because that's, that's an interesting question. Because yeah, yeah, I know the picture, but yeah, I, I wouldn't know though. Yeah, but uh, but just to backtrack for a minute about the uh, superstation, um, you know, from a fan's perspective, I mean, it was incredible when we started getting uh, you know, TBS on the cable up here. It was 1980. It was like, I was in my glory. Come Saturday, 6 o'clock, 6.05. Uh, for those two hours, it was like, you could not get me away from the TV set. Even if my parents wanted to watch something else on TV at that point, it was like, no. <laughs> you know, and, and How did you, uh, having uh, having gotten interested in wrestling in the old WWF Bruno Backlund days, how did you... How did Georgia compare to you? Because it was the the working style was totally different. Well, I I'd seen Florida wrestling on the UFH the old UFH channels up here. So Florida wrestling, so right. Gordon Solzy was a very familiar voice to me anyway. And you know, we had Dusty Rhodes passing through and guys like that, so I knew it, the Funks, the Briscoes. Uh, but it was I always liked the uh, atmosphere of the TV taping. Of course, you know, Gordon was just a few feet away from the ring, or at least it appeared he was. The wrestlers would go between Gordon and the ring a lot, and it had, mm-hmm. like, more of a live feel because the wrestling, because it was, I guess it was taped every week for the TV show. The WWF taped them for once a month for their right. TV shows. So, you know, so, you know, something happened at the Omni the next night, and then, like, a week later, they're already having the angle building for the next Omni card two weeks later, so it was a much more intimate, much more fast-paced, I guess you would say. And it was more exciting. I mean, I, I love the WWF. I love Bruno. It was back when I never liked but Bruno I did. I liked the guys up here, but Georgia was just, a, you know, like a whole different, you know, very different, but very enjoyable as well, because like I said, I liked Austin Idol, you know, the superstar, uh, wrestling to you know, Tommy Rich to a degree, I like, I guess. Uh, Armstrong, you know, all those guys are like this. Also, Otis, too, I knew them through the magazines. I read the magazines religiously, so I knew those right. guys already, also. So for me, it was exciting to see you know, Tony Atlas, you know, because I knew about him through the magazines, you know. But uh, from a band's viewpoint, it was very exciting, you know. Which, uh, the way you thought about it, uh, more commonplace than some people might think about how the fans took the uh, WWWF. You know, I know that Bruno was uh, considered a god by many and uh, from Pittsburgh into uh, other areas of the, uh, you know, uh, the the booking area of the WWWF. Uh, So so was it it unusual for you to discuss Georgia when most of the fans, I would assume, we're we're talking about the promotion in 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 New York. Well, uh, 
my uh, I, I had two friends who watched wrestling with me. Um, one of them who had cable, he watched it also before the wrestling. So we would talk about that. And my other friend, um, who they, they never had cable, his parents actually. So, you know, but, you know, we were talking about the WWF, but he was always interested anyway in guys like Rhodes and, you know, Briscoe and people like that. So, uh, you know, because, you know, a lot of people had the cable and they watched it. So my friends, even people at school would watch it sometimes, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, but no, no the conversation for, uh, yeah, I had friends who watched both, you know, so. It was uh, it was like different, and, and the one funny thing I mentioned before about you know with cable seeing someone who left one territory with an injury angle, you know, working somewhere else. You know, there was a wrestler um, Scott Irwin who was um, he had been on the Super Destroyer I think at one point, but right, he was sure. up here. He was one of the Lumberjacks. He was a champion champion from the Alabama Lumberjacks. And a couple of weeks later, he left, and he was in Florida wrestling as the Florida Vikings and his best Sonny King. And it was the same guy, obviously. You know, we recognized sure. him. But, you know, I, I think the fans, at least, you know, I, I didn't know the inner you know, workings of it, but, you know, we knew it was predetermined what was a work, you know. But we didn't right. understand the workings. But, so, you know, it wasn't that, it wasn't that unusual for me. It's like, all right, you know, so he's there now under this name. It was like, this is something that we accepted. We didn't really, we didn't analyze it the way, you know, like the, the fans now, yeah, I don't even watch the current wrestling though, but the fans now, they analyze every little thing. They're like armchair bookers, I guess. Yeah, we didn't sure. really do that back in the day. So, you know, and um, it was kind of funny too, like when the, Billy White Wolf, um, you know, Adnan Alcazi, when he left here, he left here with a broken neck injury, and he was wrestling in Hawaii than the AWA, which I never recognized him, but my friend did. He goes, that's Billy White Wolf, you know, so, mm-hmm. you know, but well, it's just, you know, part of, part of the business that we well, just accepted, I guess. Well, when uh, Joe Scarpa left here and all of a sudden he was in New York, uh, Chief Jay Strongbow came out yes. and uh, watching it with my dad, and he said, "That's Joe Scarpa." And uh, you know, it was just so far fetched. It was just so far fetched for me to, you know, that was one of the things that helped. I think with stretching the belief was there was just, even though if you knew about the business, there were just some things that it just seemed so absurd that you just couldn't wrap your head around. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, true, true. If you look at it like certain, there's certain things, definitely, you know. But, uh, you know, like, it's, it's funny, too, like, if you think about, course, one thing that used to bother me as a fan, but, you know, when I was a teenager, was like, you know, you know, whoever, I, I used to defend wrestling to whoever said it was fake or whatever, you know, and they used to show wrestling right. results, wrestling highlights, on the news from Madison Square Garden. But the way they would show it, they would laugh at it because they would show, like, spots like wrestlers going, you know, bouncing off the ropes and a leapfrog and, you know, stuff like that, which they didn't show the real hard-hitting stuff, you know, like the more, you know, brutal stuff that happened and where, um, 
you know, so there's always software. But, you know, even, like, people who laugh at wrestling, you know, try bouncing off the ropes. You fall through the ropes unless you have to know how to hit the ropes. You have to know how sure. to, you know, to jump off the top rope and not hurt yourself or your opponent. So there's a lot, you know, like an art form. Well, you you guys know, you know. Oh, sure. I, I always, uh, you know, it was the philosophy when I would talk to somebody like that that, you know, I wouldn't give the business away, but when you, once you watch it for so long, you just, you know, you can't not know, uh, yeah. stretching that belief. But, you know, I, I would say, you know, if you're a professional, if you think about it, it's much more difficult to lose and make it look believable than it is to win. Mm. Uh, and uh, it really was. Uh, the, the loser had to make it apparent that, you know, the the opponent had had beat them and you don't you don't just don't lay down and they jump on you and you and you they win, you've got to uh make it really look believable and a lot of guys did and we were talking about that earlier that there was a definite art to that end of the business for the guys that were undercard guys that uh you know, knew they weren't gonna have a big gigantic successful career but there was work for them as long as they were willing to keep their ego in check. Right, right. Yeah. And the funny thing well, about gosh. that, too. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, too, like about like egos and stuff like that, like even more cable. Yeah, I think sometimes, like, um, you know, as fans, uh, certain things didn't matter as much as wrestlers, but I thought they did. Like, I remember Don Morocco, when he was wrestling in Florida, Bob Backlund went down there and beat Morocco in one match, but it was like a visiting champion. Then Morocco came back up here to challenge Backlund, and he became one of Backlund's greatest challengers. So, you know, certain things that didn't matter as much, like the wrestler loses, it doesn't hurt their career. In my opinion, at least, it didn't hurt their career because, yeah, it was just one loss. It doesn't really matter because, you know, because, like, the next angle could have the guy come out on top again, so sure. sometimes wrestlers will be, you know, didn't want to do a job, I guess, if they were afraid to hurt their character, but, you know, fans didn't pay attention to that. Was, I, I was like it, and Donald Post did, but, uh, it was just, like, very interesting how the whole business works and all that, you know. Sure. Well, guys, we are down to about two minutes left, so uh, I want to go ahead and, and wrap it up. Alfred, I, I certainly appreciate you joining. This has been fascinating. Um, and, Absolutely. And, Thank you. I, uh, I, I unfortunately, it. Thank you. The, the name Bobby Shane is not known. Well, it's known to, to a certain certain age of people and a, and a certain type of fan such as yourself, but for the current crowd, the name Bobby Shane might as well be George Washington or something, but... Uh, Definitely uh, a name that will will live in the hearts of, of most of us that, that got the opportunity to see him work and uh, yeah. guys like Jay and, and Bobby that actually you know even though they they didn't work directly with him but were you know peers of his um, what uh, <clears throat> what a talent he was and I certainly appreciate sure. you sharing your your knowledge and your time with us. And you're welcome thing. back anytime. It. Just let me know anytime you want to be back on and join us again. You're more than welcome. Everybody that's done our show automatically has a home. Well, I won't say everybody. There's a few exceptions, but 
for the most part, everybody that's done our show with us has done so well that we you have a permanent home anytime you want to join us. So just let us know. Uh, thank you. I, I appreciate it, and I, I really enjoyed this, and it was a lot of fun, and uh, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I had a good time. Not a problem at all. Okay. And Bobby and Jay, uh, hopefully Jerry will be back with us next week, and we'll get together and do this again next week. We'll Sounds see you guys good. Later. Okay. Good night, guys. Okay. Good night, good night guys. Good night. Bye-bye. We thank you for listening to this broadcast, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network. Stay tuned to GeorgiaWrestlingHistory.com for the latest information on upcoming events and more. As always, we thank you for your continued support.